Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. Um, real quick, we have some books to give away, and we have a lot, so we're going to need a lot of hands. Uh, if you've never read this book before you open your Bible, it's very simple. It's like Jacob's going to run. I expect you to really run. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a very short, easy book uh, about heart postures, so what Andrew taught on last week. Um, before you open your Bible, how should you approach it? Um, it's a lot of what Andrew talked about, just going more in depth. Who would be helped by having a copy of this? And Jacob will run some copies. Looks like we've got still, how many more we got? A couple? Anybody else? Great resource. One of the few books that I like actually remember something from that I read. Um, you know, most times you read a book and you just forget all of it, but I actually remember something from that book, so that's good. Uh, if I have never met you, hello. My name is Connor Davey. Uh, my wife and I have been members here for six years. Uh, we've been very blessed by this church. We have a two-month-old boy named Ridley, uh, and one of the ways that you've recently blessed us is by providing us a meal train, um, which actually has turned into an evangelistic tool because my coworkers wanted to sign up to provide us meals, and there was one slot that y'all hadn't filled already. Um, so I appreciate, and we've been very blessed by this church, by many of you individually, um, and it's a joy to be teaching this church that we love so much. Uh, if you can't tell me apart from the other teachers of the class, Andrew and Nick, I understand. Um, we look almost identical. We did, however, take a group picture, and so I want to show you this so you can help differentiate us. <laughs> so that's Andrew on the left, and then that's Nick on the right, and that's me uh, right there in the middle. Um, okay, jokes aside. Uh, it is a joy to be teaching this and teaching it alongside those brothers. Today we're going to get into how we actually read the Bible. Um, we're going to get into tools you might use to study the Bible, when you should or shouldn't use those. We're going to look at some strategies that might help you understand what you're reading and understand it rightly. Uh, so the goal of the class is to start giving you tools so you can feel confident in your spirit-given ability to open God's Word, understand it rightly, not misuse it horribly. Um, so if you're like me and you're cynical, uh, you might be thinking, thank goodness, I've been in a class for two weeks called How to Study the Bible, and we really haven't talked much about how you actually study the Bible. Um, we have spent two weeks on things that aren't really the exact same thing as studying the Bible. So the first week of this six-week class, Nick taught us on the goal of studying the Bible. So knowing God through his word. And then last week, Andrew taught us on heart postures you should bring to the text. How should you approach the Bible? Uh, so humility, faith, trust, love for God's word, uh, submission to what he says. So again, we've spent two full weeks of a six-week class on those two topics without really getting into how do you actually study the Bible. And so my question to you is, why do you think we spent two weeks of a six-week class 
on those topics, the goal of coming to Scripture and the heart postures before we get into the tools to study Scripture. Yeah, amen. So it, it's what changes us from just being scholars and academics to being Christians. Like, we approach the Bible as Christians primarily. Um, that, that's the reason we've spent so much time up front on these topics. So when we read the Word, we read it like Christians. Uh, so a lot of the strategies we're going to talk about today and from now on can be used to study any book. Um, they can be used to study any book that you read. Uh, they're not necessarily Christian in nature. So, for example, an atheist wants to know the genre of what they're reading, just like we want to know the genre of what we're reading, just for a very different reason, uh, very different reason. So because we're Christians, we come to God's Word ready for it to change us, expecting to meet God in it. We come recognizing its sufficiency, its supremacy, its coherence. Uh, we come ready to submit to what it says, even if we don't like what it says. Uh, and this book, we recognize uniquely as Christians that while we read it, it uniquely reads us and changes us, addresses things in our lives, uh, even things we might not want it to. And so all these tools we're going to talk about today and from now on are tools to help us rightly submit to the Lord and his word, rightly meet him, rightly encounter him, rightly understand what he's saying, rightly recognize the word's authority. Um, so again, we don't primarily come to the Bible as scholars or as students or as skeptics. We primarily come to the Bible as Christians. Uh, we come as those, think about this, we come as those who are indwelt by the same spirit that wrote the book. So the same spirit that penned the words uh, dwells in you if you're in Christ. So we come seeking to understand it so that we might know God and submit to his word. So if you come to God's word not to seek communion with him, uh, not to know him, and not with a humble heart that desires to understand, you are coming to the text wrongly. Uh, and that's why those first two weeks are so important, they're so crucial in us coming to the Bible. That's why Jesus even says to the Jews trying to kill him in John 5, verses 39 and 40, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So in other words, you can approach Scripture as a scholar and miss the point, miss coming to Christ. Uh, and the tools that we're going to talk about today, they don't matter if you use them to build yourself up instead of to bow yourself down before this Christ. Uh, and that's what we want to do. We want to bow down to the one who came and died in our place. We want to encounter and know this Christ, that though we were sinners, uh, God sent Jesus into the world to die the death that we deserved, to pay our price on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God and one another, uh, and rose again, that we might have life in him and life eternally. Anyone can come to him, and we come to him in his word. Yet, the point of the rest of this class is, if we want to faithfully handle God's word, uh, it often takes a lot of work to do so. Uh, it's not just automatic. It takes strategies, it takes tools, it takes time. Because you can have all the right desires, all the right heart postures, all the right intentions, 
and still just horribly misunderstand what God is trying to tell you uh, in his word, horribly misapply what he wants you to apply. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It is also up on the screen, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. As you're turning there, let me tell you a bit about how this lesson has applied uh, or how I've even needed this in my own life. So I became a Christian when I was 13 years old. Um, pretty classic conversion story at a church camp. Simple explanation of the gospel grabbed my heart. I don't remember exactly what was said. I don't remember exactly the text that was being taught on. What I do remember is a few things. One, for the first time realizing how much my sins separated me from God. And two, seeing the beauty of Christ on the cross, paying for that sin. Um, so that made me confess, begin to repent of sin patterns I was in. Wonderful week of scripture study, beginning to grapple with my new faith. Um, and so I got home after this camp. I, I can remember sitting in my room, opening my Bible for the first time alone as a new Christian. Um, first time nobody else is there. There's no pastor explaining the text to me. I'm just opening the Bible, coming to meet God. Uh, I believe I opened it with the right motive, the right heart posture, all the things we talked about, wanting to know God, knowing as a new Christian, I need this word, I need his words to live. Uh, if I want to continue to see desires for holiness grow, I need to encounter God in this book. And so I open the Bible, I think somewhere in Isaiah, and I just don't understand a single thing that I'm reading. Like, not a word. And I read and read, and I have no idea what's going on. So I remember sitting on the bed with my Bible open, alone, just crying as a new Christian because I have no idea what's happening. Weeping, I don't understand what God is saying. Knowing I needed to hear him, ready to do so, and feeling so just dumb and inadequate that I have no idea what's going on in the text. So maybe you've been there before. You feel like you're coming to the word, wanting to know God, ready to encounter him with the right heart postures. Uh, you've prayed for wisdom, maybe, and yet you really don't know what you're reading, and you feel kind of just sad and desperate and hurt uh, and, and just desperate to understand what he's saying. So we're going to read 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, and talk about how that story and the tools we're going to use today come together with this verse. Could somebody read for us 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17? Um, so these verses are specifically to Timothy, a pastor, uh, but they apply to all Christians. You know, a lot of us are familiar with the second half of those verses. So all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for these things, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, equipped for every good work. But what a lot of us don't know, and this is a big point of today, is any of the context surrounding it. Um, so notice with me the first verse that we read here, verse 14. Paul is instructing Timothy, look, look down at your Bible, that, 
the faithful study of God's word is directly linked to his continuing in the faith. So his command to Timothy is continue in what you've learned, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which is scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. So his command to Timothy is to continue in the faith. How is Timothy to do that? By continuing in the faithful study of scripture. So as a new Christian, should I have given up reading God's word? No, I should not. I just needed some tools to help me see what God was saying, investigate scripture, and hear him more clearly. Um, So that's what today is about, and that's what I needed. Starting to give tools to investigate scripture on your own, start studying it, picking it apart. And what we'll find is that it takes work. Uh, That's one thing I think I needed to hear when I was a new Christian. Did you think this was going to be easy, encountering this God and his word? The God of the universe has revealed himself in a book. And to seek to understand him, it's going to require everything that we have mentally. And we're still not going to grasp him. Uh, The Bible, as we know, is simple enough that a five-year-old can grasp the gospel. Praise God. And it's complicated enough we can spend our lives studying it and feel like we still have infinitely more to study. Uh, Which, by the way, is exactly what we'd expect from a God like ours who's loving and unsearchable at the same time. If we could grasp the depths of his words in 10 minutes flat with no effort, uh, he wouldn't be much of a God to worship. So in many ways, today is like putting up bumper guards and bowling, which are embarrassing to bowl with. If you've ever bowled with bumper guards, you know what I'm talking about. They like keep you from, okay. Um, They're really fun, that's right. Uh, It's meant to help you not go into the gutters. So maybe you open the Bible and you're bowling the ball down the lane. Maybe you only hit one pin. Guess what? Mathematically, one pin is infinitely better than zero pins. And so today is to help you not bowl a gutter ball. Maybe you don't bowl a strike every time. That's all right. Hitting one pin is better than a gutter ball. So there are two main takeaways from today. And these are them. Look at how fancy that slide is. Wow. These are the two main takeaways. Words matter and words have meaning and context is king. So that's it. We can go to the main service. That was hilarious. All right. Uh, First, words matter, and they have meaning. So what does Paul say early in our verse about the scriptures? Let me just flip back to that. What does he say about the sacred writings here? Yeah. He says they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, So, Christian, I wonder, have you ever stopped and considered how crazy that is? That words on a page in a book can provide you the avenue to eternal life. Like ink on a page in a book that you can read can show you the way to salvation from your sin and communion with God. Uh, And what's even crazier is you probably own this book, and if you don't own the book, we will give you the book for free. Uh, You likely have multiple copies. You probably have a copy with you right now. You probably have a copy you can access anywhere at any time in your language. You can read these words wherever you are. Words that have the ability to make you wise for salvation. That's crazy. God has chosen to communicate to us not primarily through a movie or an album or a comedy special or pictures or dreams or video games, but first and foremost through his word. So creator God 
who literally, by the way, created the world by his words, has now spoken to you and to me and to our neighbors in his word. We have his words, and they are able to make us wise for salvation. That should make us pause for a second and praise the Lord and go, that's crazy. Um, So a little bit of a spoiler for the next section on context, but if you know some of the historical context of 2 Timothy, this is essentially Paul's last letter uh, written from prison to his spiritual child, Timothy. So he's writing from prison. He thinks he's going to die. He's writing to Timothy. Ask yourself, do you think Paul is going to waste words in what he believes to be his last words to his spiritual child from prison? No. Uh, So one of the things that's most important to Paul and should be most important to us is the ability of Scripture to make us wise for salvation and to keep us in the faith, to help us continue in the faith. So we must be people who study every word, and that's that first point, read every word. We can't afford not to. What is the point of reading? What's the point of knowing how to read at all if you don't study every word that the Lord has written to you? If you don't read this book, if you don't pay careful attention to every single word, knowing that it uniquely can save us and keep us in the faith. God's words matter, and we must pay attention. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. Every word matters. God didn't waste words when he wrote the Bible. There's no filler. He meant every word, and he meant every word to be studied by his people. Um, There seems to be, always be, a filler episode of any TV show. So there's, they, they needed the season to be 10 episodes. They had nine episodes of good content. And so they just kind of put an episode in there that you're like, this, this doesn't really do anything for the story. This was not needed. It's just not good. Uh, even the best TV shows suffer from this. I know we're all against TV, and nobody here has ever seen a TV show. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about. There's always one bad episode. Recognize with the Bible, there's no filler book. There's not a single episode that like, went wrong. Um, God doesn't waste words. He didn't accidentally write too much. He doesn't repeat things for no reason. So he didn't accidentally leave Leviticus numbers in the Chronicles in your Bibles. Uh, He didn't accidentally repeat himself four times in the Gospels. He meant every word. Uh, Every word is there for a reason, and every word is meant to be chewed on, just like every other word. Uh, So friends, we need to read this book, and we need to read every word. If you've never read... Uh, the whole Bible, I wonder why not, um, if you're a Christian. So I was a Christian for about five years before I'd read every book of the Bible. Maybe you've been a Christian for 30 and you haven't read every book of the Bible. Um, I wonder if you haven't read every word that God has written to you, and are you maybe spending time with words that matter less uh, than his word? So maybe it's because you don't have a desire to read God's word. Uh, I would encourage you to pray that the Lord would give you that desire and trust that he loves answering those prayers. Continue to pray those prayers until the Lord answers you and gives you those desires. Uh, You want the Bible to be as sweet to you, and when we're at our best, it is, as if you're on the front lines of war, separated from your family, and your spouse writes you a letter. You're going to hang on every word that your spouse writes you. What did they mean by this? 
You want to treasure every word. You want to meditate, try to figure out what God meant when he said a specific word or phrase. You want it near your heart. You want it to be sweet as honey. And when we see it rightly, it is. So we can all pray that we would see it rightly every day. Uh, There's a lot of resources we can use to meditate on Scripture. As awful as technology can be, it also is cool to live uh, in our time where there's an abundance of technological resources to better study and investigate Scripture. Um, So there are a ton of apps and plans, podcasts, uh, translations available, often in our pockets at any given time. So I would highly recommend reading the entire Bible if you haven't, um, and I would recommend doing it as slowly as you need to to meditate on it, um, not just crushing 10 chapters in a day. Uh, nobody is forcing you to do it in a year. I know most plans are set up to be a year. Nobody's forcing you to do it in a year if you need to take more time and meditate on it. Uh, you could read one chapter a day of the Bible, and I did the math. You could finish it in just over three years. If you read one chapter a day, it's about five minutes a day, unless you're reading Psalm 119 that day. The New Testament, if you read a chapter a day, you could read it in less than a year. One chapter a day, less than a year. Um, That chapter will likely take you five minutes. You could then sit there, you could meditate on it, you could read it again, you could pray through it, you could walk away changed by it. Um, Of course, you can do this with bigger chunks. You might benefit a lot from a year-long Bible reading plan. Um, Natalie and I are doing Robert Murray McShane's plan this year. We really enjoyed it. You read four different books of the Bible every day, usually a chapter of each. Uh, so right now we're reading Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Revelation. Um, by the end of the year, we'll have read the New Testament and the Psalms twice and the Old Testament once. I believe there are copies of this at Connecting Point, And if there aren't, uh, we just print it off ours online for free, Robert Murray McShane's plan. Uh, That's a great plan because you get to see different books of the Bible all at once. Um, Last year we did a chronological plan. That was a great plan for a different reason. Um, It was very cool to see especially the histories uh, come together with the Psalms. So last year we read David commit adultery with Bathsheba, get confronted by Nathan the prophet, and then read Psalm 51 that he wrote in response uh, to being confronted and repenting. That was awesome. So at the end of the day, there's a ton of plans. There's a lot of ways to work through Scripture in a year. It's usually three or four chapters a day, um, about 15 minutes of actual reading before you start meditating on it. Uh, I put on here as well just different translations can be helpful in reading every word and in reading with repetition. Uh, There's kind of a scale in translations between word-for-word accuracy and, like, readability. Um, and a lot of translations fall somewhere kind of in the middle. So the ESV and the CSB are both like pretty comfortably in the middle of that scale uh, and are both good, great translations. Um, cross-references are another tool to help you read every word and kind of make connections uh, between the texts uh, where it might be drawing from. So a lot of study Bibles have these. Uh, you can also just print out lists online. Um, I actually found one when I was prepping for this lesson. So if you want one, you can talk to me after. We can, I can email it to you or something. Um, but we need to read every word. However, for some of us, the second point, you actually might need to slow down in your Bible reading. Um, so I need to be careful with my words here because words matter and words have meaning. You get it? Uh, but you might be reading 10 chapters of the Bible every morning, which is great. But there's no time that you have for meditation. You have no time to sit and chew on it. 
Some of you might truly benefit from sitting with a chapter or a book for longer. Um, So if you feel intimidated or overwhelmed by the amount of scripture it takes to read the Bible in a year, and you feel like you have no time to meditate, uh, try what this slide says instead. So pick a book of the Bible and just read that book of the Bible straight through. Um, You can pick a long book. You can pick a short book. Uh, Jude, 2 John, you can read the whole book in five minutes. Um, Just read the book, read it at a normal pace, and then read it over and over again. So maybe read a different translation the next day. Um, Just keep reading that same book. Uh, Day after day, keep reading. I'd recommend reading it without help, at least initially. So don't run to Google right away. Don't immediately pick up a commentary. Uh, Just read the text. It's sufficient. Um, Use your brain. And uh, use the Bible alone. Notice repetition, structure, commands, applications. You can read it prayerfully, so pray before you read it. Andrew talked a lot about that last week. Pray as you're reading it. Pray after you read it. Um, Pray through the passage. And then I think you can read with 2 Timothy 3 in mind. And what I mean by that is when Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and all of it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. You can ask yourself as you read any verse in scripture, how is this passage teaching me? How is it reproofing me? How is it correcting me? How is it training me in righteousness? How is it equipping me that I might be complete and ready for every good work? Those are things you can do, questions you can ask yourself about any passage uh, in scripture, because Paul says all of it is profitable for those things. Um, Final point here that I think is kind of underrated, uh, read with one another. Obviously, there's, there's great value in spending your mornings with the Lord, doing a quiet time. Um, but I think that we, we could benefit a lot as a church from just grabbing a brother or a sister or a group of friends, a group of believers, and reading a book together. Uh, because at the end of the day, no matter how much you study and no matter how much of a genius you are, Uh, you have blind spots, and your brothers and sisters can help you point out those blind spots or things they notice about the text that you didn't. Uh, And you can help them, Lord willing, as well, see things that they might not have seen in the text. Um, This is, by the way, reading with one another, is how the story ends with me sitting on my bed crying alone. Um, My mom came in the room to, like, get my laundry or something and took 10 minutes and sat down with me and explained what I was reading in the text. So praise God for godly mothers. Um, Reading with one another is an underrated tool. So again, to summarize all of this, uh, Bible reading plans for a year are great if you have time to meditate. We do need to be people who read every word of Scripture. Uh, If not, or if you want to do something else as well, reading with repetition can really help you see things in the text uh, that you're not going to see your first time through. Uh, Repetition is very important in just how we learn as people. So you're going to naturally notice things on your 30th read-through of something that you're not going to notice on your third. Um, That's just how life works. If you think about any skill in life, the first time you do a thing, you're usually pretty bad at that thing. So like riding a bike or driving a car, um, usually not great the first go around. But the 300th time you ride a bike or get in the car, it's usually better hopefully better. Uh, So friends, some of us are trying to read the Bible, and it's like we tried to ride a bike, and we fell once, and then we're like, well, I guess I'm never going to learn how to ride a bike. 
And it's like, yeah, I mean, no, it just takes time and repetition. And if a bike takes that much time and repetition, how much more coming to the God of the universe and his word uh, is going to take everything that we have. We need to read over and over and we'll get better. Uh, we'll recognize words faster. We'll see patterns and make connections. We'll start to grasp what the Lord is teaching us. And if we do it together, we can help each other see things uh, that we might be missing. So words matter and words have meaning. Uh, and we need to do our best to rightly handle God's words, to hear what he's saying, to listen to him and listen to him and listen to him, and to use all our mental faculties to understand him and hear him rightly. So we can do that through reading his word, every word, reading those words over and over, and reading together. Second main point. Context is king. Context is king. So again, this is something that you should know if you read any book, any book at all. Uh, any book you read, context is important. So we're going to work on redeeming this tool to better understand God's word. So how many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? Okay, that's good. Um, imagine watching just the part of Lord of the Rings at the very end where Frodo casts the ring into the fire. Let's pretend he just casts it in there and there's no creature trying to stop him. Uh, you have no idea who the characters are. You have no idea why this short person is throwing a very nice ring, what looks to be very fine jewelry, into a river of fire. Like he probably could have sold that and made some money. At face value, if you just watch that two-minute clip with no context, all you know is a short guy dropped a nice ring into a river of fire. Maybe you're yawning or you're confused. Again, maybe you're like, that looks like a nice ring. I probably would have sold it instead of throwing it into the fire. Uh, just watching two minutes of that or like a random two minutes of any movie uh, is like reading one verse of the Bible without reading the context surrounding it. So if you only saw those two minutes, here might be your summary statement for The Lord of the Rings. Short guy throws nice jewelry into fire in a very emotional way. Um, but, of course, if you know the context and you know the story and you know the 11 hours of screen time that led up to that, uh, it means a lot more, right? If you know how evil the ring is, how it's trying to bend him to its will, has a mind of its own, and he's casting it into the fire to, like, destroy evil, essentially. Um, so your summary statement now goes from short guy throws away nice jewelry to evil is defeated. <laughs> like, that's a big difference just based on context. Um, and so Christians, we need to know the context of what we're reading in the scriptures. Uh, it's something we can't afford not to do. If we don't want to misapply God's words, one of the quickest ways we can make sure we apply it faithfully is knowing the context of the verses that we want to apply. So there are two main types of context we're going to talk about, historical and literary. Both are important. We're going to spend a lot more time on literary context. I think that's significantly more important. Um, it allows us to just use our Bibles as well. Um, so first, let's briefly chat about historical context. Uh, we live in a world of technology. One of the ways we can get to these answers very quickly is just by Googling them. However, if you do some work in the text, uh, oftentimes you can just find these things in the text itself. Um, and if you start using Google, you'll find very quickly there's some strange opinions on the Bible 
uh, and historical context. Um, there are also study Bibles that have intros to every book with these things in them, uh, which can be really helpful, especially for those Old Testament historical books that you're like, I just don't understand the setting of this. When is this happening? Who is this to? Um, study Bibles can be very helpful for that. But let's run through this really quickly with 2 Timothy, since that's what we were looking at. Um, so who was the author of 2 Timothy? Mm-hmm. Paul. He literally says it in 2 Timothy. Who was the original audience of 2 Timothy? Timothy. He literally says, to my beloved child, Timothy. Uh, when was this text written? So you got to do a little bit more work because he doesn't just tell you, I'm writing in this year. Um, but what he does tell you is it's toward the end of his life. He, th- he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Um, he, he believes it to be his last letter. He's writing from prison. What was the author addressing with his audience? Uh, if you read 2 Timothy, it's all about the gospel, guarding the gospel, um, continuing in the gospel, suffering for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to Timothy's hearers as a pastor. Um, and, and that's exactly what his intended meaning for Timothy was. Timothy, continue in the gospel, suffer for it, guard it, proclaim it to your hearers. Um, so again, notice with me a lot of that stuff, if you just read the book, you don't have to even Google any of that. Um, it's just given to you. Uh, Paul is telling us up front why he's writing, who he's writing to, and what he's writing about. Um, yeah, boom. We didn't have to use Google. We already know the historical context. So there, I'm not saying there aren't more difficult books that maybe that would be helpful um, to use those tools, to use Google, to use a study Bible to place it historically. That's great um, if you want to do that. But what I am saying is you can do some work in the actual text itself and come to those conclusions. Um, you have everything you need in the Bible. You don't need anything more. Those things can be helpful for sure, but they're not necessary. Okay, so let's camp out a bit in literary context. Uh, And specifically, let's talk about genres and their importance in the Bible. You need to read different genres differently. So again, let's take Lord of the Rings as an example. What's the genre of Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Yeah, it's like sci-fi fantasy. It's like the classic fantasy um, book. So imagine if you were watching Lord of the Rings and you thought you were watching a documentary. It gets a lot scarier. Like a lot scarier. And it leads to some false conclusions. So if you miss, this is what I'm trying to get to, if you miss genre something, you lead to false conclusions. So you mistakenly start to believe hobbits, elves, dragons, wizards, Sauron is real. (laughs) Um, Yep. Yeah, agreed. Um, Now, imagine you think The Lord of the Rings is a comedy, like it's in the comedy genre. Now it's not nearly as scary as it should be. So people are getting ambushed by orcs, and you're like laughing in the theater. That's that's weird. Leads to some false conclusions. Um, So you you leave watching Lord of the Rings, and your friend's like, what would you think? And you're like, I don't know. There just weren't many big laughs. Like that's you misunderstanding the genre of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, You miss the point if you don't know the genre. And the same can be true of the Bible. So if you read the Psalms or Isaiah like you read a narrative, 
you can land in some trouble. Um, and it can lead to some false conclusions. So for example, this verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 8, the Lord says this, Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. If we read this like a narrative, we walk away believing God is a literal rock, right? He says, there is no other rock. I know not one. So not only is God actually a rock, but there are no other rocks exist in creation. He is the only one. So this is a funny example, but it happens all the time uh, among Christians in, in smaller ways generally than that. If you miss genre something, you can end up misunderstanding it. Uh, so when we read Isaiah, most of us naturally recognize we're reading prophecy for most of the book. Uh, and what that means is it's not a historical description. It's vivid imagery. It's symbolism that signify truth. So this doesn't mean that we don't take the Bible as completely true. We do take it as completely true. It just means that the truth isn't always exactly what the text says at face value. So we know God is not literally a rock, and we know that other rocks exist. Um, God is not a rock. What he means by that is what? Yeah, he's steadfast and true. He's unmovable. He's unshakable. He's a rock. Um, exactly. So let's take an example that's a bit less funny and a bit more relevant. Um, and so in this example, we'll learn a bit about reading narrative. One thing we need to remember as we're reading narrative is that we're essentially reading a history textbook. And a thing that I've found very helpful in reading narrative is that history textbooks don't tell you the morality of what you're reading, uh, and we don't expect them to. So in Genesis, when men start taking multiple wives for themselves, one way we can miss genre Genesis and misapply it is by saying, you see, Abraham had a lot of wives, and therefore I should have a lot of wives. When we're reading the narrative of Genesis, that narrative, it's like a history textbook. It doesn't give us the morality always of what we're reading. Just like when you're reading a history textbook about World War II, it doesn't tell you the concentration camps are morally wrong. You just know that coming into it. You're supposed to know that coming into it. The whole point is it doesn't have to. Um, so the narrative describes that Abraham had multiple wives, yes, but it doesn't prescribe it. It's not an endorsement of polygamy. How could we use the literary context just within Genesis to prove that wrong, that polygamy is wrong? What about Genesis 2? Yep. So before sin, one man, one woman, united in marriage. And we also know if we zoom out from Genesis, the literary context of the rest of the Bible, marriage is a picture between what? Christ and his church, yeah. So Christ is united to one people. Um, he's not united to multiple peoples. He doesn't cheat on his people with other people doesn't marry multiple peoples. So from literary context, we can read a narrative and make moral judgments on what it describes, even when it doesn't give them to us. So those are just a few um, examples. I'm going to briefly list out which books kind of fall into these categories, and then like one sentence on how you should generally read these categories. Unfortunately, we don't have time to just camp out in all of these. Um, narrative, OK. 
A lot of the Old Testament histories and first books fall into this narrative category. There are also parts of prophecy that fall into narrative. Uh, prophecy books, excuse me. So like there are parts of Isaiah that are direct narrative. Um, so this is description, as we just talked about. It's a history textbook. It doesn't always tell you what's right and wrong, uh, but sometimes God does make it very clear even in the narrative. This is, this is how he feels about something. Poetry. Uh, Psalms is definitely the biggest book of poetry. Song of Solomon is in there as well. Um, just like reading secular poetry, truths about God are revealed through imagery and song. Uh, they're revealed, obviously, in a unique way in his word. Uh, it's meant to be taken as truth. Poetry is meant to be taken as truth, but not literally. Um, so when David prays that the arm of the Lord would crush his foes, he's not praying that a physical arm comes out of the sky and lands on his enemies. Um, he's praying that the Lord's strong hand would deliver him. Um, prophecy. The prophets are all grouped together at the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Um, through the end of the Old Testament. So I think you can read these with an eye toward local fulfillment and then also ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So oftentimes there's a short-term fulfillment of prophecy and then there's an ultimate fulfillment in Christ or a fulfillment that's yet to come in Christ when he comes back. Uh, so that, there's how you read prophecy. Wisdom literature. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes are considered wisdom literature. Uh, I think you should read these as sayings that are generally true most of the time. So when Proverbs tells you, for example, that you will surely meet your grandkids if you're wise, uh, know that that's a general truth for most people. We don't take every proverb completely literally or count on it to be 100% true for 100% of people. Um, it's wisdom literature that's generally going to apply. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, we're going to learn in an upcoming week that the entire Bible is about Jesus, uh, but the Gospels obviously have a, a laser-focused view on Jesus. Um, you can't go wrong just keeping your eyes on the character of Jesus in these books. So what does he do? What does he say? What is his heart for sinners? Um, epistles, letters to the church. Oftentimes, this is where we can find direct application to the church today. Uh, so letter writers, they use imperatives that often apply to today. So when Paul tells Timothy to guard the gospel and continue in the faith, uh, it's an imperative we can take and use in our own life. Guard the gospel, continue in the faith. And then finally, apocalyptic. Uh, there are parts of Daniel that are apocalyptic, and the entire book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Um, the best way that I've found to read apocalyptic literature is to find out exactly what every symbol symbolizes. Don't read it in light of the rest of Scripture. Ignore the beauty of Christ coming back. And really just focus on what do the seven horns mean. That is all a joke. Um, obviously, there is a lot of symbolism in apocalyptic literature. And those symbols are very important. I, I don't want to deny their importance. They're important. Um, but I think we can be people who miss the forest for the trees in apocalyptic literature. Um, so I would encourage you to primarily read Revelation uh, as a beautiful book depicting Christ's glorious return for his people. Um, that, that last chapter of Revelation, those last couple chapters, should just blow you away, uh, that Christ is going to dwell with his people, that we'll be free from sin. Um, 
So don't primarily read it as a detective trying to figure out which politician might be which horn of the beast or whatever. Um, it's important to try to understand those things, certainly. But it's not primary. It's more important to see the beauty of Christ coming back for his people, for his bride. And then finally, uh, I just encourage you to zoom out a bit at a time. So verses, right? One verse. How does this fit into the context of the chapter, the book, the testament, and the canon as a whole? Um, it's funny how much false theology can just be corrected if we just zoom out even just a few verses. Um, and you find even a lot of like semi-Christian or non-Christian cults will take a verse and twist it. And if you just go to the verse with them and read a couple verses around it, it becomes a lot clearer um, that they're misapplying it. And I think some of them can even recognize if you just read a few verses around it, uh, wow, we've really misinterpreted this. Um, a lot of bad theology can be corrected by just zooming out even just a little bit. Uh, and the more that we know every word of Scripture, the more that we read it over and over again, the more we're able to make connections that are faithful uh, and correct bad theology by zooming out. So, for example, even in our own circles, Philippians 4.13, see this all the time, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Wonderful verse, Philippians 4.13. So that verse is obviously about sports, and if we put it on our jerseys, the Lord will let us win. No. <laughs> because even if you just zoom out a few verses, you find out Paul is talking about enduring everything through Christ's strength, enduring hardship and abundance, Christ being the key to surviving both hardship and abundance. Um, so even zooming out just a few verses shows us that we shouldn't apply this verse so quickly um, to whatever we, we want to. And if you zoom out further, that just gets reinforced by the rest of Scripture. Um, so, wrapping up, um, I hope today has been helpful for you. Two main takeaways. Words matter, and words have meaning. So, we need to read every word. We need to read those words over and over again. And we should read with one another. Uh, and context is king. And if we're going to faithfully understand the Lord, we need to understand what he's saying in light of everything else he said. Um, and context truly is king. We need to know the historical context of what we're reading and the literary context of what we're reading. Next week, we are going to continue to dig into more of these tools um, that we can use to study our Bibles. And the rest of the time is really how do we uh, continue to faithfully interpret and apply God's word? How do we see Christ uh, throughout the entire Bible? Um, and then how do we apply everything uh, to our lives and not be people who mishandle uh, God's word? So let me pray, and then somebody is going to start us singing the doxology, and then we can go to service.